this is the point, right? What is violence? Violence is not responding to racial capitalism. <laughs> violence is racial capitalism. Welcome to Surviving Society. With Chantel Lewis and Tiso Regis. Executively produced by Georgia Fori Addo. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. Welcome to another episode of Surviving Society. We are really excited today to be joined by Ollie DeRose, who is a policy fellow at SOAS, a PhD researcher researching the colonialities of British policing. But crucially for this episode, Ollie also stood as a socialist Labour Party, Party candidate in the 2019 general election and unfortunately did lose. But lessons from your standing in that election, you have put into a book titled Suburban Socialism. And it is such an amazing book. Um, we're going to talk about it today. But yeah, before that, Ollie, thank you so much for coming on the big show. Big up yourself, Ollie. Yes. Big up. Big up your Big show. up. Do you know what? When you contacted us about coming on the show, Ollie, as an ex-suburbanite, i.e. someone that grew up in suburbia, i.e. someone that grew up in a predominantly white town in the West Midlands, I was like, hmm. I don't think I don't think suburban socialism is possible. Mm. I don't think that that's something um, that would be engaging, nor is something that could provide a hopeful um, vision for society. And I was wrong. Um, oh, not only that's... because you present in this book possibilities for collective action in the confines of these very particular places but also you detail the long history of organizing and socialism within these places as well and I mean it's no the listeners know on this show that yeah I grew up in these places I did my PhD on these places and I mainly talk about the racism in these places so I do tend to have a pretty kind of I mean we're all biased but a very subjective view on um, suburbia so it was really for me personally it was really great to read something like this. Mm. It was a good read. It was a very kind of down to earth, like down to earth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like it was easy to understand. Yeah. But I guess I'm coming from the other way from you, so I guess I would define myself as a, an urbanite. Yeah, mm. yeah. Moving in suburban spaces. That's why surviving society is sick, you know. <laughs> what because we suburban and we got a suburbanite and an urbanite <laughs> with the Eng- with the, with the, Engl- the English the English suburbanite the English it? urbanite like it's very very particular um, ways of living being and understanding society. The more I read your work and the more I looked at it, I think to myself, you kind of delve in and try to explain how slippery these terms are and how sometimes are they helpful? Are they useful? I, I don't know. And the more I kind of read it and looking at these spaces that I find myself in, I find these those terms those class terms not as useful as they were. Because you need a more nuanced understanding of how we live in in those spaces, I guess. Yeah, I think in the first instance, Ollie. Sorry, Go. we're just we're just fangirling. <laughs> we're fangirling you. But yeah. <laughs> what is suburban socialism? That's a great question, and thanks so much uh, for having me. And those words that, are, that does really mean a lot. Um, and yeah, just what you're saying about the kind of way we understand class uh, with this kind of distinction between urban and suburban, I think is yeah, it's very problematic. Um, how we kind of think of just what you said earlier about kind of like a racially diverse urban core Mm. and then this white suburban outskirts Mm. and it's like it's not in some ways that's true but in some ways it's also not Mm. and it it kind of um, hinders kind of multiracial working class coalitions that we can forge across Mm. across both Um, anyway sorry already derailing Um, no not at all that's brilliant the suburban socialism is essentially it can be many things um, but I kind of define it as the struggle for you know, forms of collective ownership in the suburbs. Um, it's not really a, a blueprint of what socialism can be because I personally don't subscribe to the view that you can have like one kind of socialist utopia. Um, it depends on the particularities of where it's fought and, and who fights for it. And that's why I think suburban socialism is important because when we think of socialism, we think of it, I think, in quite urban centric terms. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the idea of what so- socialism is in the suburbs is made has possibly been neglected um and we need to think of like when we think of socialism as this urban centric concept it's not socialism in its many varieties um so the way i kind of introduce it is yeah i, I stood in in brentwood in 2019 you have gave a very polite description of me uh losing yeah lost by twenty nine thousand votes which is <laughs> it's not ideal no how many votes did you get though i think i got 
7,000 something. That's 7,000 people. In So I'm sorry, look, there'll be a lot of people on this show that grew up in these places and understand what the cultural manifestations are of these places. Sorry, that's a very like snazzy sociological word. But what I mean by that is these places sometimes are very unwelcoming of difference and change. Like mm-hmm. That's just, it's my opinion. Mm-hmm. So to get 7,000 people to vote for a very different way of being... I'm going to give you your props to that, Oli. Oli's underselling himself. He's exactly. Not really, he's not really selling the story as in like the t- how many people how many people were put up for, for the, that seat from your party and your own kind of your own journey to that place. So, yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. Let's roll back. Let's roll back. Oli, start at your Tory beginnings. Oh, no, no, no. Come on. You have to. You have to. <laughs> I was trying to people, gain... need to, people need to know that you can change your mind. You can change. You I was trying change. to gain some like vague credibility first. Before no, I, no, like, no, 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 lost. no, no. <laughs> It's all, about, it's all about honesty um, on this journey show. The journey is interesting. Journey. Yeah, 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 true. Journey is interesting. Yeah, I mean, I guess this is kind of the encapsulation of suburban socialism and its many like contradictions mm-hmm. of what it means. Like, yeah, I grew up in Brentwood, which is a very uh, safe Tory seat, and you know, both my parents are conservative. Nobody in my family really has ever voted Labour. I'm already getting the excuses in early, but basically, <laughs> I was a massive Tory when I was like. 17. Right, what, does, um, what do you mean by massive Tories? But, no, but, that, like, make, but that makes sense, right? Yeah. Your, your, your world around you makes sense. Right. People, it makes sense. Right, yeah. I mean, by Tory, I mean like the worst possible kind. Like, do you mean you know, cultural and economic? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, and also the kid in sixth form that was like That's playing what devil's advocate or something. You know, like, yeah, yeah, that, yeah. like just the most insufferable like 17-year-old boy. Mm. I think it didn't help as well. Like I went to a school in Chelmsford, like, a grammar school, which then really convinced me that meritocracy is like real real because obviously your teachers tell you oh yeah. you belong there you deserve to be there it's kind of thing. It's just your like environment s- confirms your bias this is sick this is sick confirmation bias. so why <laughs> yeah. wouldn't you be that way yeah if you told me opposite i wouldn't believe you yes right. same do you understand so that makes perfect sense and it's not insufferable that's how it was yeah. for you mm. that was your reality man right I mean, it was probably, it was insufferable for everyone else, yeah. I imagine. <laughs> right, yeah, so, okay, 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 that's right. So it's, you're a cultural and economic Tory and you're a bit of a shit. Yeah. Who changed this your mind? Te- this Who is present tense. Who changed your mind? Yeah. Who changed your mind? As, yeah, I mean, I try and talk about this in the book towards the end. Um, and I think like a lot of people expect there to be like a moment that happened that changes your mind. But really, um, it was, and this is a bit of a cliche answer, but it was the people that I met so like you know you just like somebody or you like people you you make friends with people and then you kind of trust them and then they tell you that actually you're an idiot yeah and like none of this like i remember having loads of debates and all these like civil debates not one kind of like structured back and forth would change my mind mm. it's really about like the emotive reaction that somebody has to what you're saying that makes you realize that what, what your words have an impact kind of thing or like because, you know, we talk about the civility and incivility and how yeah. you shouldn't shout at people and all this stuff. But no, like, that's the thing that really made me change my mind. Maybe not in the moment, but then I remember kind of coming back home to Brentwood and thinking, I've started to change my views and this, there's this really big dissonance between what I thought I believed and now maybe what people were introducing me to. And that kind of was a bit of a disorienting mm-hmm. um, experience. And I remember people's, like, angry reactions to me back in sick form. Mm-hmm. You know, when I'd say, like, um, what's wrong with kind of, like, closed uh, immigration? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then there'd be people in the class who have experienced what that means mm. that would get angry, obviously. And it wouldn't touch the sides at the time. No, I'd be like, why are you getting so angry at me? Like, we're just talking, mm. you know? It's just like, it genuinely does bring a little bit of shame to, no. th- to, th- to think about your past. Because, but <sighs> I, 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 you I, I, can never really I, make I, up I, for it, but I, it's... I get no, the idea. Not. I get the idea of moting shame because mm. I, I would be like that as you as you're growing up. Because you sometimes you hold extreme viewpoints and at the time for you, you're having what you deem as a rational conversation with people. Mm. And you're thinking, well, mm. why are you getting so upset? Because yeah, yeah. I'm following the rules of logic, of argument, which I've kind of been brought up to believe in. So, so surely if you're getting emotional, that surely you're the loser, you're not being civilized. And also I think that what, Oli, what Ollie's <laughs> talking about is being a product is what you were saying of your environment, mm. but also the English education system, which mm. tells us that there is a meritocracy and doesn't actually sh- tell us and show us that actually those exchanges are never equitable mm-hmm. because we're all starting yeah. from different places. Mm-hmm. So I really, I yeah, the fact that you're talking about shame, like we appreciate that kind of honesty, but I think that there is a real purity in talking about things in these ways. And I think this is why- It's the realness, man. It's, it's the, the realness, realness you the get realness me. The realness is important because the realness, like you sitting right here, Ollie, I was having this conversation right now. This is what hope looks like. It's real. This is what hope looks and sounds like. 
let's get back to it though. Right, okay. <laughs> so, okay, so it was, it was a, right. Can you just name a couple of like moments? That kind of changed my, my yeah. yeah. So, well, firstly, I'll give a, give a shout out to one of my closest friends called Hannah. Yeah, I knew it'd be a woman. Uh, that's why, yeah. that's why, that's yeah, why yeah. I was, that's, that's why I was like, tell her, tell her name, say her name, say her name. Yeah, look. Big up Hannah. Uh, yeah, that, that was a big, the big patience, part of it. The patience of Hannah. Patience of, well, actually the impatience of Hannah. As okay. in like, well, patience was like we were good friends, but the impatience in her not really caring about whether I would uh, come friend. along to her point of view. Yeah, it was this was what she thought, and I would listen to her. She wouldn't try and persuade me. I don't, I'm not saying there isn't a role for persuasion, but yeah, that's, yeah. that's not that's just not how it really came about. Um, and yeah, I just she was a like devout communist, mm-hmm. and then so am I now. So it's like it's just like I don't know. Yeah. It's um. I, yeah. Was this at university? That was at uni, yeah. Where'd you go? So, I went, my undergrad, I went to Exeter. Yeah. Which is not an ideal no, place to No, but I'm surprised. Kind of... I thought you might say Exeter, you know. Yeah. And I'm re- so, and it was people that you met at Exeter. So, people when I met Exeter, it was like, it kind of dragged me to a bit more of like a, a bit of a lib. Yeah. Like, I kind of. Lib Dem, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, just, yeah, just kind of like, oh, I'm not an ultra conservative anymore. Right. But I still kind of, I still had a fear of maybe like radical socialist change for mm-hmm. sure even if I don't really didn't really realise that's what it was um, but then it was and then I really only kind of went off the off the rails uh, like maybe at my masters yeah um, where'd you do masters I did my masters at Oxford yeah mm-hmm. but again as in like it's funny because you which college I went to St Peter's cool yeah. um, oh you with Danny Dorlin big was up Danny there, Dorlin yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, okay <laughs> I think Ken Loach was as well, and yeah, so yeah, 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 um, yeah. So that the thing is, you always hear like obviously like the right wing press being like these institutions brainwash people into being mm-hmm. left wing, which is not true. Like yeah, yeah. the the courses themselves were still conservative, yeah, or, yeah, like, yeah. Sort of a small C. Again, it was the people that I met there mm-hmm. that were like fighting against the grain. In terms of sociology, like contact theory, right? So mm-hmm. the idea of meeting people will change your point. Meeting, meeting people of a different point of view mm-hmm. will help you broaden your mind and approach problems differently. Exactly. This is why, yeah, change isn't in like the debating room. Yeah. It's in like workplaces and like meeting areas where you meet people and you, and you talk to each other. Sure. However, philosoph- philosophically, that's what you're taught though, right? Through right. rational debate. Of course, yeah. Is that's how change happens, right? Yeah, yeah. One side of the process, so it's a dialectical process that you've been taught to, without, reali- really, without realizing it, that's what you've been indoctrinated to believe is mm-hmm. the way forward in change. So even our politics, even how it's, you see it visually, there's two sides, right? Opposing mm-hmm. each other. And so change comes from rational debate from one side right. to the other. Right. So when it doesn't happen like that, you're thinking, well, oh, that's weird, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah, because pe- then people think, oh, so it's arbitrary. So I get yeah. a, this a lot. I say, oh, I've been really right wing. Mm. Now I'm really left wing. Mm. Oh, one day you'll like, end up in the middle. Mm. And it really, really infuriates me because it's like, it's it's a diff- it's an uncomfortable process that I, that I went through. Mm. Not to make it so like narcissistic, but like it, it was uncomfortable, yeah. but reckoning with like your own kind of views. And that's not something that you can just kind of reverse. Um, yeah, this emotive kind of connection that you form with people isn't something I'm just like, oh, actually now someone might present me with a paper that says uh, why liberalism or conservatism is actually like the best way forward. But it doesn't, it doesn't work like that. And as you mm-hmm. say, like in Parliament, yeah, it's just obviously just a complete, it's just a show mm-hmm. with two parties opposite each other. Obviously nobody changes mm-hmm. their minds because mm-hmm. um, that's, n- that's not where opinions change. Mm-hmm. But what I think is interesting though, right? And what I think is interesting in your, your journey that you're describing is the, f- the process of change, right? Because that involves your identity, right? And people don't abandon identity lightly because it might it means you might lose something, mm-hmm. or, or you're changing something that gives you power. Mm-hmm. So the fact that that people, the reason one of the reasons I think people find it hard to change because they don't know what they might lose because mm-hmm. it's a risk, right? Definitely. And so, yeah. So what do your what do your family think about you being a communist now? Um, I mean, they both said because I, st- I was Brentwood is my hometown. Yeah, that's kind of why I ran. They both said they voted for me. <laughs> so my mum and my dad both voted for Jeremy Corbyn, which is mad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that's like a change of to yeah. the narrative. Like whatever. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, no, it's a bit of an anomalous uh, example. Um, I think they, they're they confused, maybe. Yeah. They're, they're very supportive, like, yeah. of course, like, definitely. Um, they have political instincts, I'd say. As in, but that they are open to kind of like, I guess, talking about it a little bit, but... Mm. Neither of us want to change each other's minds. We just kind of like let ourselves yeah, kind of coexist in peace, kind of thing. <laughs> right, so where were fun, you? Where were you? Twenty sixteen politically. Twenty sixteen. So that was when Brexit. Co- Brexit. So I was in my kind of like 
moderate phase. Okay. So I was big remainer. You're a remainer, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I still am. A, I still would def- well, no, define I think myself, you- but like back then, that was a big part of my identity. Yeah. yeah whereas yeah. now I kind of look back on that and think, why was that such a big part of my identity? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I didn't understand maybe some of my more left wing friends who weren't, you know, Brexiteers. Yeah. But they weren't like, they didn't really care as much because they were like, it's a bit more complicated. Yeah. We don't like the EU. Yeah, I yeah, guess yeah. we'll have to vote Remain. Yeah. And I was confused by that. Yeah. Whereas now I'm a bit like, okay, you understand, I understand it a bit that. More. Yeah, and to be fair, like we've said on this show, like I don't, I still don't think I necessarily agree with Lexiteers as in mm. left wing Brexiteers mm. because on the, on the, in the everyday sense, like I think we have seen firsthand how interpersonal racisms have mm-hmm. really affected so many people's lives in the UK. And that was brought about by like the, an awful Brexit campaign led by like basically fascists Mm -hmm. um but equally like we understand again on this show like the eu is an awful um institution (laughs) like it's true but sometimes it's about it's about more than that isn't it and yeah but it shows you how unhelpful the the language that we have is describing the reality that we Mm -hmm. exist in yeah so and i think your book kind of captures that even when you start talking about the very definition what you're talking about socialism if you went to if you spoke to someone in the us and you mentioned socialism Mm. They have such wild concerns. They're not even speaking about socialism. Not, not that I even I understand it. I don't know. Could you tell us about how you define socialism? Yeah. First, it's a good point about the US because like, they always bang on about democratic socialism in America, mm. which is strange to me mm. because for me, socialism is the um, implementation of democracy in every sphere. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like you don't really need to say that word. And I think they're just kind of scared of basically being called a Stalinist, right? Yeah, basically, but, basically, yeah. Um, yeah, and you see like Bernie, right? His democratic socialism doesn't even include like public ownership of of certain goods. Like I, I like Bernie, obviously. Like, mm-hmm. And I went to, you know, in the book, I say how we went to Vegas, which mm-hmm. is the weirdest place in the entire world, mm-hmm. um, to campaign for him, right? So I like, do like him, but, you know, yeah, the idea of democratic socialism in the US context is different. I think I describe socialism as, again, it's important not to have a one-dimensional top-down definition, but for me, it's the struggle for... Um, forms of collective ownership over the things that we need to survive and thrive Um, so and it can exist in many forms obviously Um, but it's about dismantling structures um, that are rooted in exploitation um, and replacing them with forms of collective flourishing I know that sounds quite vague um, but I think that's a really good definition so Daddy's not an academic yet no but (laughs) from reading your book I think that's what I like about it. you have the you have the I, don't, I guess the balls to touch to pin your your pin yourself pin your master to sell to say to define something which is very rare. Like so if I say to someone define socialism or define neoliberalism, people especially in this studio would shy away from it because mm. they're scared of being wrong yeah, or contradicted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Like you've taken a stab at it, man. And it's, oh, I think it's very personally, it's a good work. It's, I think it's a good definition. You're very brave, Ollie. Yeah, man. Oh, no, you are. Most people, you like are said, most people are not brave. When we say like, define your liberalism, people freak out. And, and these, these are well-experienced like, academics. And also, every time we've had someone on the show, like, guys, no disrespect, we love all our guests. But when we ever have people on the show that have got neoliberalism in the title of their book, I say, what's neoliberalism? Oh, oh. They're the, like, the, oh. the fear. The fear. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. They, they, Why is it in your title then? And then they try to get us to define it. Yeah, you define right? it. Yes. I would say it's kind of arbitrary because like, I could have called this book Suburban Communism, right? And I, mm-hmm. I, I, I still don't read, to be honest, the distinction between socialism and communism for me is very unclear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Still to me to this day. Yeah. And like, to be oh, honest, baby, you're going dra- to get dragged now. People are going to be atting you. Just just so you know, Ollie, know, the difference between saying. <laughs> but it doesn't work for the alliteration. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, the Suburban Session is great. Right. I'm going to read a little bit from your book. Okay, so I really like, because I really like the, as someone, obviously, not obviously, but if you listen to the show, very big fan of Stuart Hall, really like the idea of talking about civil society as a way of finding both how hegemony, as in the control of ideas and the people, is reproduced over time, but also civil society in terms of thinking about our micro-social relations and how we find hope, but also how we see harms being reproduced by individuals and institutions. So I love thinking about civil society in that way. And you talk about civil society a lot in suburban socialism, because I think that Again, when we talk about civil society, it's quite hard to think about it in the terms of an urban setting because urban settings always seem very disparate and like, and even though that isn't necessarily the case, but very sort of sporadic and different pockets of different forms of civil societies. Whereas Mm. the suburban suburbanism or the suburban place or the town understands itself as Mm. being a Mm. civil society in of itself. Do you know what I mean? Like a like like a um. I do know. I know you know what I mean because it's what you're talking about. But like as a unit, Mm. there is 
homogenous, but we know it's not. It's heterogeneous. Anyway, right. Let me read a bit from the book. So what you're imagining a civil society to be in suburbanism, in suburb, in suburban locations. A civil society is one in which everyone has unconditional access to the resources that help human beings flourish. But we won't be able to articulate, let alone actualize this society without defying the expectations of civility as in its currently as it is currently defined under capitalism as courteous deference. And on this, why must our incivility be per- be so personalised? We should collectively disrespect the institutions that prevent us from exercising radical compassion. Although this will have necessary and important effects on individuals, the object of our collective dissent is the institutional settings they, all of us, are forced to inhabit. And the message of our collective dissent is clear. Suburban capitalism is harmful to the majority of suburbanites. For this very simple reason, incivility can be an inclusive endeavour. Boom. That's incredible. That is amazing. (laughs) That is amazing. Because what what I take from that sentence, what I take from that paragraph, what Ali's trying to say, is that we present incivility or something like being rude about institutions that cause us harm as something that we shouldn't lean into and actually incivility or rejecting institutions that harm us whether that's energy companies whether that's the schooling system whether that's how the schooling system is designed by government is not something that's rude or that is uh not about being collective being collective against these things is a possibility for us Right. Is that is that? Yeah, that's, yeah. I mean, can we replace what I said with that? No, no, that's what I took from it. It's brilliant. So I guess the provocation would be: what if you don't perceive those institutions as harming you? Let me contextualize it. In the, in the, if we contextualize in, in the context of individualism and respectability, mm. right? So people that have these in their mind, for example, the energy companies, that we all might be struggling. And even people on higher incomes might be struggling, but because the image of respectability, they will just put up with it or not say they're struggling and see it as a personal failing. Mm -hmm. And so they will try to work harder because they don't want to be seen as someone who can't hack it. I can't keep on the pace. I don't want to be seen as those people who can't cope. So can I just say what I took from the book, this provocation, this is what I took from what you said, Ollie, and then you come bring us all round back and tell us what you actually meant. So what I took from Ollie's book, which I think was so good, Mm. is that there is a huge notion of respectability that is constantly reproduced within suburban settings, Mm -hmm. particularly predominantly white English towns, provinces, like we've had... um, uh, what's his name on talking about this? We had Value talking about this as well. Like mm-hmm. constant respectability is always reproduced. And what Ollie is saying very carefully throughout the book is that actually that respectability does harm, even if it's not doing economic or material harm to the most wealthy, it does psychological and emotional harm to them. So actually, what are the benefits of suburban capitalism? Like we're all just carrying on as if this is a normal way of being. Like, and actually, like the social the social issues or the social social um, harms that come out of us ignoring that this is a multi-class issue which affects us all is things like domestic violence, things like suicide, things like um, family breakdowns. Like, actually, that respectability or that pretending everything's okay, even if you can economically afford to pay a high energy bills, isn't doing anyone any goods. Yeah, no, I both completely agree with kind of what both of you are saying, like the, the tension that you're, the, the, yeah, yeah, is the through tension, here, yeah, right? Yeah. Okay. Which is that, yeah, like, first Bring thing us back, of, Ollie. No, no, that was great, and I, I completely agree, and it's that you know, civility, what we think of, as we've said before, is about conversation, uh, we need to be polite to each other, etc. And yeah, that's not getting us anywhere. Uh, when you look at kind of um, the reaction to the Black Lives Matter protests, you know, you saw uh, people saying it was uncivil, mob-like, etc. all this stuff, and what they're actually saying is, you know, people are graffitiing uh, a Target store, mm. and they were like saying that you know this is uncivil. It's like no, what's uncivil is the structure that allows, say, Target <laughs> to exploit its workers. For example, so that's what it's saying. So, and as you say, it's um, how do we get people to? Um, what if they don't think of it as harmful? What if they don't see suburban capitalism as harmful? What if they don't see the um, energy bills rising as harmful? As you say, it's actually a, a moral failing in themselves, which I think is really, really strong in suburbia with this idea of uh, you know aspiration, etc. But that's the point and that's the power of collective incivility is that it creates this rupture that forces people to reckon with the ideological framework 
that they live in. So, you know, why the train strikes at the moment are so powerful is because we can see now clearly that it's not just, uh, it's not the drivers taking the decision to strike. It's the government and the economic structures they uphold which are putting them that putting them in that position. And I do think people are beginning to realise that more. That's why the strike's been so surprisingly popular because I think people are realising that we live in collective structures that you can't and you can't just explain everything with your own individual choice. But um, but you see, I think people people at some level are having awareness of that, right? So if right. you go back to the nineteen twenty six uh, general strike, right. right? So there's always a broad support for working people to get what they're owed in inverted commas, right? Mm. So some so it will get to that point where inequality seems that where it takes into it takes into account not just what people define as the urban poor, it takes into a wider sweep. So they they generally will back it, but there's an awareness that. The system of expectations to most people without that kind of critical case seems in inverted commas natural. Yeah, 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 for sure. So it mm. seems natural for co- for companies to make profits mm-hmm. because they've been told, and this is what the understanding of the world. So when you say when you approach people, when you say to them the, the issue of inequality, how do you resolve that? Mm. And they say, well, kind of a general a generalized retort is, well, there's always going to be inequality, mm-hmm. as if it's always existed. They cannot imagine the world outside the capitalist framework which they've been brought up in. Absolutely. So. This is where I this is where I kind of come to a problem. So, regardless, when you're approaching the, the man the man or woman in the street, how do you convince them that the world there's alternatives to the world that they have mm-hmm. that the whole the very fiber of their being is constructed out of? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And 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 same with racism or or to gender politics, it's hard for people. Once you have what that kind of like, when, imagine you when you're when you were seventeen, and if I approached you at seventeen and had that rational debate with you. Mm-hmm. It's almost inconceivable for you of you to move that position because everything around you just confirms your reality. Absolutely, I saw, that's exactly what I thought. I was, mm-hmm. When people talk about inequality, I was able. It's very easy defence, which is yeah, but it's not my fault. Also, and also, it's just inevitable. Yeah. So yeah, what you were saying is is an encapsulation of what Mark Fisher talks about, which is capitalist realism, which is the idea that um, it's become impossible to imagine a world outside of capitalism. Um, and I try and. Um, apply that to a suburban framework, you know, suburban realism, mm-hmm. um, which I think is particularly the sense in which capitalist realism is particularly strong in suburbia. Um, that people think that inequality is inevitable, that exploitation is inevitable, or it isn't exploitation to begin with, right? Because mm-hmm. they wouldn't recognise it as that. They'd recognise it as people engaging in a contract where one person agrees to work for X number of hours. Um, and so this is what you're saying is so important about um, incivility and civility, which is that we will not convince people that inequality is inevitable, whatever the mm. opposite of inevitable is, um, through reasoned debate, in my view, um, or through reasoned debate alone. It's about um, many things, but not only about kind of like protests and strikes, which, is, as I said, tries to... Um, force people to reckon with this ideological nature of their reality, but also to build collective structures in its place that actually showcase, not just tell people, but showcase that collective structures can exist. And that tells people, like, oh, there is a different way. The idea that rupture is so dramatic, it kind of, yeah. it's hard to avoid mm. the kind of logic of it. You can see it and you think, yeah, it's believable, right? But it's that very, it's that, by that very act that makes people think that doesn't match my worldview. So mm-hmm. it's easy. It's easier for me to disregard that. So, for example, we gave the example of Black Lives Matter. The narrative was these people are uncivilized. Mm. So I'm not even going to be willing to listen to them mm. because they are, even though they're demonstrating it, but it seems so wild that rupture is so obvious that I'm gonna. It, it doesn't even make sense. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's illogical. Mm-hmm. So it's easier for me to disregard. For example, I guess early feminist movement when they were throwing themselves under horses, and it was so against the, the feminine way. It's unbelievable. I can't get with that program. That's the issue you come up against. These ruptures, even though I agree with them yeah. and that, the way of protesting, the people who are in the mainstream, how do we get them on board? Because like I said, their, their initial reaction is to be the opposite of that. Maybe it is by getting to their pockets. Like, as in, you're seeing a lot of people, like, unexpectedly, well, not unexpectedly, like the energy companies, how much our bills are going to be over the next, well, how much they are now, but how much they're going to be over the next six months. You are seeing a kind of multi-class alliance, I think, emerging on, on this. And I think that's, I think what you're saying to agree with you, see, is like 
that's exactly what happened with the poll tax. Yeah, 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 that's, that's what they're calling it. They're calling it poll, to- mm-hmm. poll tax too. Although this law was coming to, into force for a very long time, people didn't react until the, the envelopes went through the door, until they saw how much money they had to pay. And then people <laughs> yeah. were motivated to get out and do things. We're, we're all kind of sociologists here, so we can talk about economic determinism and like mm. the kind of the kind of that motivated people to go out in the streets. But something that, that they felt in real life affected everyone. And yeah. you could go next door and you could speak to your mate and he had the same thing. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's how things like Facebook work. You, it's the idea that it's coming from someone you trust, so it's the truth, so therefore you can get on board with it. Yeah, yeah. I think it's absolutely both what you said is so so spot on. Like it's a combination of many things, which is one that material conditions need to be obvious enough for people to think, mm-hmm. oh, actually something's wrong here. And what you were saying with the energy crisis, like it seems pretty simple, right? People don't want to pay more uh, money for their energy for no discernible reason. Uh, you know, th- mm. there's no, there's nothing they've done that's deserved this. And also, like, if you think of the suburban idea of like frugality, where people are like, oh, we really want to, you know, we, we think that the way to run an economy is about household budget, all this stuff. But like, you can actually kind of capitalize on that in a way. Mm-hmm. And that people have been, you know, quote, saving, but now they have to pay all this money for energy that they haven't kind of predicted. And it's, I would say as well, the target isn't to kind of persuade each and each and every individual kind of conservative, it's instead to locate possible coalitions in the suburbs that we might have ignored previously. Um, Go on, give us some examples. So for example, you know, when we think of suburbia, we don't think of the working class, right? We think mm. of middle class people. Unless you grew up in suburbia. Right, of course. Yeah. yeah. And uh, it's and I grew up in a quote middle class family and I and I was very blind to the idea that suburbia well, the suburbs and the working class could kind of go together because first of all the suburbs aren't just a place where people live. It's a place where people work. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, suburbia doesn't chug along by itself. There's no waitrose without waitrose workers. Mm-hmm. It's similar, you know, people need to get to work. So um, who, who takes them there? Um, the delivery drivers, you know, you could, you could literally name a whole cohort of people who work to live in the suburbs. Um, and that, for me, is enough to challenge these very culturally reductive notions of what working class is. Mm-hmm. And as we said at the start, um, this idea of like the urban working class of course they exist, right? I think one thing that we kind of, we struggle with is when we're fighting against these um, notions of working class that imply they're just white northerners. I think the easiest thing for us on the left to say is, no, 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 we've also got multiracial um, metropolitan areas. Of course we do. But we also, there are uh, outskirts, there are urban outskirts, suburb, suburbs that have multiracial uh, populations. Um, and this is why the suburbs aren't just, it's not about white homogeneity. It's not about middle class homogeneity. It's about inequality. Um, because no one place can just exist in a vacuum kind of by itself without, like suburban affluence doesn't exist without suburban exploitation. That might occur within that suburban boundary or beyond it, but it's still kind of implicated within what it means uh, to have a suburb in the first place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And those are the kind of coalitions that we need to be forging mm. um, that are in working class interests but encourage people who have less uh, or more ambiguous class positions to forge common bonds and to like act in solidarity. And that's where my optimism comes from, rather than how can I convince my mum and dad that actually we need a general strike? Because um, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that conversation is going to go very well. We have a very particular terrain at the moment where with low wages, like people that like, big corporations making more money than ever, like individuals making more money than ever. So I think we have a very, very fertile terrain for creating those kind of coalitions, Mm -hmm. particularly in the suburbs and the workers. But one thing that I think you're definitely up against, and I definitely have this on a kind of familial level as in families, my family, but also within the areas, the suburban areas which I grew up in, is that there is still this kind of aspirational Mm. working class cultural mentality what i mean by that is even if you're working in kind of hospitality retail jobs mm-hmm. within the suburban setting some a lot of people that are working class still live in that suburban setting but they live in like the council estates yeah. in that suburban setting yeah. so for me like thinking about suburb um, suburbia as middle class it's different as well because it's locationally specific like the west midlands suburb- suburbs is very different sure. to the surrey mm-hmm. shires and the kent shires but like there is a kind of, and it's not, it's, you're right, it's not just about um, white homogeneity or what I call hegemonic whiteness in my mm. PhD. Um, it is about like something that's, which is more cultural that 
and that it's something very cultural and specific to suburbia that is very English that I think even amongst severe exploitation is really hard to challenge well basically put simply British or the English love to fucking suffer like Mm -hmm. and I'm sorry they do and it's like to change the minds of people that economically would benefit from a different political system is even really difficult. I think it's really challenging. I think even the idea of aspiration in amongst the working classes. How do you confront a system that you know is oppressing you and you feel it, right? But but that aspiration is the motivation, right? It convinces you to stay in the matrix. Yeah, it's yeah. the aspiration that keeps you in that system yeah. of oppression, even though you know it. Mm-hmm. So you know your parents will know that you're you're not going to get that. You're not going to be in the top five hundred country mm-hmm. uh, company but they will tell you that lie mm-hmm. to keep you going, to give you the aspiration to keep you going. Because if you knew the truth, you'd give up. Because the thing is overwhelming, right? Yeah, definitely. No, I completely agree. But just coming back to my point in the beginning, I do think we do have a very fertile terrain to challenge these things. And it right. ca- it, it, it is possible. Mm-hmm. But there is that cultural... There is that cultural thing that I think is hard. It's really hard. It is really hard. I think a great example of that is inheritance tax, oh, where yeah. fewer than 5% of people are subject to inheritance tax when they die. 60% of people oppose it, any form of inheritance tax at all. And it's this thing, right? You want to believe that you will be rich enough to leave money for your children. And it's also very kind of like emotive and kind of like kind-hearted kind of aspiration if there is a kind of like mm. it's or it's one that's difficult to kind of morally criticize mm. because why wouldn't you kind of want to save money for your kids right especially when we live in this world in which we privatize and individualize systems of care like i understand why my parents want to do why they believe that and it's so difficult especially when you say kind of like working people who are working to live i met nurses who didn't want a pay rise for uh, the newer nurses coming in because they had led a very difficult life themselves. You know, they had worked really hard. They'd suffered. So, so what, the yeah. next people need to suffer That's what I'm as well. about British people. And it's just self-reinforcing. Everyone, everyone, yeah. want everyone to suffer. Yeah, yeah. Everyone to suffer. But, I said, but that's, how the, that's how the kind of capitalist system works. It works on a kind of zero-sum game. If to give anything means I might lose out mm. and change my class position, which, which sometimes either I fought for, in inverted commas, and the people coming up behind me haven't they're not deserving enough because I've suffered and they're yeah, yeah. they're kind of riding on my coattails. Mm-hmm. So it creates a kind of zero sum game where everyone's against everyone. British culture, like that no one likes anyone get away with anything. No, apart, apart from the apart, super rich. Yes, yeah, I'm saying apart from, apart from people at the top. Apart from people at the top, but, they're allowed to get away with anything. Yeah. But, but, but not your neighbour. But that's what reinforces why we do that, because we see them at the top and we understand, for example, in the in the case of inherited wealth, the leg up that it gives them. So you see that you think it right. So if it worked for them, it should work for us. And that's why you want to do that because you can see how it, the material benefits, the cultural benefits, the economic benefits of it. Yeah, all. Yeah. This is why the, like the idea of wanting people to suffer is so shocking. It's when the party gate stuff happened. Mm-hmm. Like uh, my parents are, sh- are staunch Tories. Mm. They've only ever hated the Tories really when they were very annoyed by the party gate stuff. Obviously I was too, it was a disgrace. But I think it was interesting how the only time that a lot of conservatives now turned on the Tories was because of the idea of someone else having fun. Mm. I really do think that was like mm. the biggest thing they couldn't stand. Yeah. And again, like, yeah, it was awful. They should all go Not like the whatever. Eugenics. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> State sponsored eugenics. Precisely. Not the- yeah. Not, not child poverty. No, but, not but, but it's the first time they realised that they, the class that they thought they were part of, they're not. There's a, there's another group yes. of people who are yeah. a bit more exclusive, and those people. So mm-hmm. I guess one of the things that Boris Johnson has mm-hmm. done, and I guess Trump, those things have always gone on, but they've laid it bare. They've not kind of kept the the normal conventions that the elite normally do. They keep it quite secret. Billionaires didn't want to be known in the past, but now they do, right? Mm-hmm. And so you you start to see the inner workings, and you realise how unequal it is. So for example. Look at how Trump and Boris Johnson behave. They behave in like the kind of kings of old. Mm-hmm. Ultra virus beyond power beyond, to, right? Yeah, yeah. Previously, other prime ministers might have behaved the same, but they kept it under wraps. Mm-hmm. And so the common people think they're the same. Why do you think people in the suburbs started to engage in Black Lives Matter in 2020? Great question. Great question. Like that, like that, like that, like that, like that. I'm not a host for nothing. Come on. It's a really tricky one because. It could be like there can be loads of reasons. It's loads of reasons, and I think it's it's whether we're trying to. It depends what we're trying to do. If we're evaluating, it, I think is one thing is to kind of firstly celebrate. So how can we celebrate it? Or yeah. what's good about it? And you know, what the narrative? Of what's good about it? Okay, there are these people that are getting involved that otherwise hadn't before. So I bet you. Were, are, I bet you were sat around the table with your parents, and they were like, "Black Lives Matter, Ollie." Um, <laughs> not really, not quite. Not quite. <laughs> 
not quite. But you know what I mean. No, they were. You know they, what I mean. You know yeah, what I mean. They, they were. They yeah, were. Like, it's terrible more what happened to. Of course. Terrible of course. Happened. Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But. I don't want to dump my parents. No, no, no. Um, you don't need to. When you use that as a metaphor. Yeah, yeah. Use one's that as a parents. Metaphor. Yeah. yeah, one's parents. Um, Black Lives Matter. They were, okay, yeah, it was young. It was definitely younger sub- suburbanites, I'd but, say, yeah. on the whole. But younger white suburbanites that, yeah, might yeah. not otherwise have kind of been involved in this kind of collective action before. That were the previous antagonistic Ollie in sick form. Exactly. Yeah. I think there definitely were a lot of them. I think there was a, if I'm going to be a bit cynical, there's a lot of performative. Uh, action. Black squares. Black squares, etc. But even but the perform, even the, I think even we find hope in the performance. Right. Or do you think that it's about? I, uh, go on. I don't really. I, it's not that I don't find hope, but what I'd say is like it's interesting to see the difference in the reaction, say from the state, to uh, these kind of like white marches in say Chelmsford. Yeah. You know, when I went to like it was very it was quote peaceful. There was even like a thing in the in the newspaper. It was like, look at these like nice march that happened. Then if you contrast it to say, um, I'm trying to think of an example, Walnut Creek, I think it is, or maybe that's somewhere there was a in the US um, majority black protest. Mm. Obviously, completely different reaction to what kind of yeah. to, to the the peacefulness of this mm. protest, of which they said it was not. Mm. And so it's this kind of combination of. Um, a middle, a quote, middle class protest is less confronting. It's less scary mm. to the people in power mm. or to structures of power than it is to see a more working class, multiracial mm. rebellion mm-hmm. kind of thing. And I think that's what makes me kind of less willing to celebrate it because it's kind of great. Mm. People are more people get involved, but is this actually dismantling systems of racial inequality, or really is it? legitimizing them by letting the state being like you know we hear you they had like town hall debates in Chelmsford more it's like so what like they basically people could voice their concerns and then nothing changed right so it kind of just actually entrenched the system rather than really dismantling it through the forces I'd be saying of incivility because if it's in- uncivil they're not going to let you do it do you know who's going to like that that's a top tier analysis Alana's going to like that but- that's a top tier analysis it actually white the, the right white middle class respectable protest actually mm. entrenched <laughs> I know, but you, you, but you understand. So when I look at that, when you're saying that, so if you look at the narrative that the kind of black struggle is being kind of inherited through, it's through the notion of civil civil rights, Martin Luther King, and peaceful protests, right, right? Right, right? And that narrative has been adopted from the states and over here. So any any racial right, any racial um, conflict needs to be done through that kind of lens. Mm-hmm. So anything that's violent isn't in the spirit of Martin Luther. So you right. see the far right even utilizing that, saying you're not. But being like the paragon that we were holding up to be yeah. of this is what this is how you protest race this is how you do race politics in Western societies it has to be non-violent yeah. has to be peaceful and it could be it could be multiracial it doesn't matter but it has to be peaceful even though it's complete rubbish right yeah. like because we obviously Correct. we just completely uh, whitewashed like the mm-hmm. the history and say oh it was just this peaceful process that everybody loved despite the fact that he was really disliked yeah. by like, <laughs> yeah. the majority of people right <laughs> and when there was actually real quote violence again. Mm-hmm. This is the point, right? What is violence? Violence is not responding to uh, racial capitalism. Mm-hmm. Violence is racial capitalism, and that's why my friend wrote an article some like let's let's um, take a knee for Target. You know, like when they, when there was graffiti. Yeah. You know, like, your friends? He's called Jamie Ranger, and he's sick. Go on, Jamie Ranger. Who you got, Jamie um, Ranger? Pad the people. And I just love that phrase. Like, yeah, people were so upset, like this idea, of, like smashing windows, because that's violence to them. Mm-hmm. Whereas violence actually is systems of private property that that um, empower these. Businesses to exist, for example. Oh, so, have you been reading Wretched of the Earth? I have a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> I thought so. Yeah, come on, come on, From Hobbs to Fannin. Hobbs to Fannin. From Hobbs oh to Fannin. <laughs> What's that? Wretched of the Earth. George is actually so George I think he's banned. I love he's you George. Banned. he's banned from reading Wretched of the Earth because oh. burn it down <laughs> burn it down burn it down yeah, um, so Ollie just coming back to you and then bringing it back to what we were talking sorry. about with BLM so what were the particulars so Grenfell Grenfell definitely had a big impact again it wasn't like one big event that kind of just like then I was suddenly socialist but like that had a big impact in terms of you could not have a more visual representation right of of the violence of the state state and private property um and then not long after that i started working for you know labor Mm. um or connected to labor party and that experience did actually also push me to the left um because i was really i joined labor because of corbyn Mm. 
um, and saw just basically the institution obviously didn't want him to win. I mm. uh, don't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist, but like it definitely, you know, he had so many institutional barriers within his own party that it really annoyed me. I was like, I was so naive to think, how could one party be so divided or like mm. uh, fragmented while one faction has a mandate to rule <laughs> and to lead and the mm. other is just trying to kind of destroy. So that really dragged me to the left as well, thinking like, you know what? Uh, I was I was just more impatient. Just um, to add to your kind of yeah reflections, like I'm not not saying anything is certain, but I yeah. have also have some reflections about 2017 in particular. I'm based sure. in Battersea and Ballam, and right. I definitely saw some very questionable things right. with okay. regards to how or whether people right. would be backing mm-hmm. um, the Corbyn agenda locally yeah. within the Labour Party. Just just questions. I'm not yeah. saying anything. No, That's I mean question. like as in yeah I, yeah. I, I, yeah. If you mention the Ford report, you're seen as like a crank yeah yeah, yeah. Like if you say the Ford report you're defined as a crank and it's yeah. just like no there's a report that says that they diverted funds yeah to different seats and it's like i i, I don't understand how more obvious you can you, yeah. you can be um and it's obviously been brushed under the carpet and that's yeah very upsetting yeah that was a that was a big reason it was it was you know what reading reading the book um ollie like and particularly reading your kind of reflections about um when you were stood in when you stood in Brentford, I remember waking up. Mm. I spoke about this on the show before, but on the uh, in twenty nineteen on the morning of the uh, on the mo- morning after general election, mm. and I had campaigned back in the Midlands in Dudley um, and um, locally in Battersea and Ballam as well, and I just cried and cried and cried because it just felt so. Obviously, we're like a bit we're a bit younger. I remember talking to T the next day, and he's like life is about political disappointment if you're on the left it's just standard but equally like it just felt so unfair because it just there were so many of us like just trying to find a better life for more people yeah yeah and people literally said no way and more pain more pain for more people actually but this but this is but i think this is the key point and again to kind of loop in some of our kind of sociological sociological thinking it's disenchantment right that's that's what you feel. Hmm. Your worldview up until that point is thinking that it's possible. They convince you that this this system that you're involved with is is possible to get some change. But the thing is so big, and even though you know it's so, but you haven't really thought about how inco- how all encompassing this thing is. And when it, when you do, it's the shock. And it happens to us in various parts of our life. Mm-hmm. So, for example, you find a lot of, a lot of white working class people will have a certain view of people on benefits until they're on benefits themselves. Working class people that happen to be white. Right, so working class people that happen to be white. So when, it ha- when, it, when, they, when they encounter the state, how vicious the state can be. Also, there are black and brown working class people that also like hate on other working class people as well. I'm yeah. just saying, like, yeah, yeah, it is... But when they first... Because you, you've never encountered... Or the best example, I guess, is just during lockdown and COVID. Mm. White people, for the first experience of being stopped being policed, Right. They, oh, yeah, they lose yeah, yeah. their mind. They say, but up until that point, they hadn't really thought about it. Yeah, so yeah. when they, I, I'm getting stopped to search from the age of 13, but now in their 50s, they're being stopped to search. They've, they've encountered the machine and they they, and they then, can't understand. And then they find out at a party. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just, and so yeah. just what I'm saying the eye that disenchantment that your parents might have felt when they saw them having a party with party gate. You're yeah. thinking shit. So they, it's so annoying. It's got a name. Yeah, it's and, so annoying. But but, but, but once you reach that point of no return, it's what do you do next? What happens next? Now, some people, some people like you, you make a change and you start trying to do things differently. Other people will double down. Right. Double down and want to be part of that experience mm-hmm. and, and work hard and deny as that is, as that is the unreality. And this is what they live in is the reality. So some of some of our, I won't say, some of our, what's this word, not comrades, not friends, some, some people on mm-hmm. the right, for example, they've, they've seen that reality and they've seen oppression and they, they've, they've come to a different conclusion. The conclusion mm-hmm. is everyone for themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and they're thinking, well, that's not possible. And you're thinking, well, if I can see this clearly, but for, for, from their point of view, you're not seeing clearly. Mm-hmm. But, but you've come to that point of disenchantment, right? So it's quite interesting how people deal with that. Um, on disenchantment in the Labour Party, Georgia just handed me um, an yeah. article. Um, Labour loses nearly 100,000 members and makes £5 million pound loss in 2021. Mm-hmm. Ollie, what do we think about the Labour Party? At the moment, yeah, um, yeah, hugely disappointing. Um, We've divested as a podcast. Have you? I divested for a long time. Yeah, ago. Yeah. <laughs> a long time ago. Well, guys, we did the election reflection. We told, we told, we said, listeners, yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I don't really come down too hard way of like whether you should stay or leave. Like, 
I'm all, I'm kind of like I understand why people left completely. I also kind of understand why people stayed so they could vote in election vote in elections. I've just kind of haven't got round to it. I'm I'm a member now of Islington North CLP, so that's why it's a bit mm. more complicated because mm. it's Jeremy Corbyn's. Seat. I'm a member of a, the Green Party. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, I left Labour Party. And I completely understand yeah. the decision. Look, I joined I joined Labour under Corbyn, um, as a lot of people did. Yeah. Um, created the largest party in Europe for a reason. Uh, Mobilised loads of young people and otherwise disenfranchised people. Um, and after the election, people learnt the lessons they wanted to learn, which was, uh, for some reason, the idea of any form of radical change is now impossible, even though it's only going to get more urgent than needed. Um, Kistam has obviously spent the past two years doing everything he can to marginalise the left. Um, so I understand when people say, like, do you have any self-respect staying in the Labour Party when obviously he doesn't have any... Um, respect for you the only reason I stay is because I think you can do some good in Labour at a local level like local councillors I think can do some good stuff especially look at Preston um, and places in Islington you know they can actually do oh some yeah good. Preston How, that guy that young yeah, guy yeah Matthew Brown yeah he's a um, ledge yeah yeah and so that is the thank you so much that is the only kind of reason but although I have to I do have to drag some of the um, Labour lo- local councils when it comes to housing oh sure oh yeah I mean Labour councils can be terrible terrible can terrible, be good terrible. can be absolutely appalling, awful appalling stuff um, but no it's yeah it's as you say yeah the news that you just said that the, they've lost 100,000 yeah. members right and that's not a problem for Kistama we have to understand like he doesn't care because he will try and gain money from um, yeah. wealthy donors yeah. and that's the kind of politics we didn't we try to break yeah. by saying that like you can actually have donations from a lot of donations from lots people. of people and then you're not beholden to special interests instead you're actually a collective movement and it's really sad um, yeah you're right he doesn't care he don't care but but I think what's what something that you say all the time is when we whenever we're talking about things like this we, we have to kind of understand notions of power or, right. or include power in it so he's not really he's, he's not interested because he wants to have power and yeah, yeah, exactly. He's seen power how Tony, for power's sake. Yeah, so Tony, but how how Tony Blair had that system of going to the donors, similar, just like in the book when Murdoch. you when you wrote um, when that guy came up to you, the Tory guy came up to you and said you're oh, not yeah. going to get voted if no you're, one's going to vote for you if you're, if you're a socialist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you'll never win if you're socialist. Yeah yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So he, it's the, it's the tacit understanding that everyone knows the game, right? For mm-hmm. power, you need to behave behave in in what we understand now is in a, in a Tory way in yeah, inverted commas. Absolutely, and it's like, what is the point of getting power if you're not going to actually change things for the better i don't understand just join the tory party if you want power just just you know have adopt the tory manifesto and put a red rosette on would people still vote late which you still think is a good idea to vote labor i don't understand so like people surely have some red lines Mm -hmm. and they've been crossed so many times Mm. um i what i would do is hope that the left-wing block in Labour party could potentially I, i i like them i think they're in a difficult position if they could show a little bit more collective strength and exercise their leverage, because at the moment, Kistama can do what he wants. Ollie, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Um, patrons, please stay on or like switch over to the Patreon site now and you'll have another bonus episode of us. Ollie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It was so fun. Thank you. Amazing. We'll see you again next week. Bye. Thank you for listening to Surviving Society with Chantal and Tiso. You can now continue the conversation with us on Twitter and Instagram. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. 